Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Thursday night. It is May 7th, the year of our Lord, 2020. This is obviously not the studio. This is not even Nashville, Tennessee, but it is Lake Kick and it is live. And we got a lot to talk about tonight. I'm just at an undisclosed location apart from Colin tonight. And it's not easy for me emotionally, uh, nor is it probably actually it's probably a lot easier for him, but we'll get through it. So we got a lot to talk about tonight. Uh, if you are watching on the YouTube channel, go ahead and subscribe, click the bell for notifications. And if you're listening on the podcast, we appreciate it. Those five-star reviews just continue to flow in some nice written reviews too. So we really appreciate it because, I mean, you guys are helping us out a whole lot more than you could ever know. So I got a lot to get to tonight. I'm going to leave the show in a couple of seconds with a topic that to be blunt with you is probably going to impact virtually every program. So no matter who you are listening or watching, no matter who you pull for, even if you're just a conference tattoo on the ankle sort of guy or girl, this will impact you. And I'm talking about this tsunami of imminent decommitments in the recruiting world, which is the lifeblood, as we know, of college football. There's a reason for it. And I got some good old fashioned numbers here on the computer to back it up. I'm also going to talk because I had when we were recording the Late Kick Extra podcast, someone talked about Gus Malzahn. And usually the questions for Malzahn or regarding Malzahn are very different depending on if they're from Auburn folks or just neutral observers. So I got something from an Auburn guy the other day. He wasn't asking it with any kind of vitriol. He was just being honest, giving his assessment. So I'm going to give you my assessment. Also, I had some pushback from a lot of you. I wasn't going to talk about this tonight, but I'm scanning the comments as I do. I read every single email, every single tweet, every single comment. and a a surprising number of you, I would say, not all, not, not even a vast majority, but a surprising number of you took exception to me saying the ceiling for Tennessee football is now and has always been elite status, top of the sport, right there with Alabama, Texas, if they're good, you know, if they're right, uh, Clemson, what they're doing right now, LSU, what they just did, like Tennessee is fully capable of that. A lot of you flat out called, you know what, on that. Well, I think you're wrong. I think you're very wrong. I, and I think I'm right. Everyone thinks they're right on everything. I'm going to tell you why I think I'm right and why I think a lot of folks who suggested otherwise are wrong. And then I'm going to do some Q&A at the end of the show because we've got some good questions. So let's get it started here. Uh, this probably, he's not paying me to do this, but this is probably the third show in a row where I'm going to reference our Bud Elliott. And it's because he's doing really good work. All those guys on the 24-7 sports desk are doing really good work. But Bud, we were in a conference call the other day and someone, in fact, a couple of people had brought up how many commitments there have been. And, you know, you hear that and it goes in one ear and out the other. Okay, well, you said a lot, but that didn't put a data point on it. And I don't have a point of reference. Like, what is a lot in reference to what? So Bud puts together a piece because he started it off like I just started it off with you. He said, you know, Ted Hyman, who does a great job with our graphics, creates pretty much everything you see visually for us from a logo to whatnot. And Ted says, you know, it seems like there's been a lot of commitments. I've been making a lot more graphics, been doing a lot more commitment videos. So Bud kind of starts off this piece, and you can find this on 247sports.com. 
And uh, he said, you know, I looked into this and Ted was dead on the money accurate. As of May 6th, I want you to think about this now. I'm going to give you a number, but then I'm going to give you the context. There are 627 committed recruits in the current class of rising seniors. Okay. Now I'm going to give you the most important sentence in this entire piece before I go back to it. Without summer camps and spring evaluations, and this is Bud talking, there are a lot of players committed to schools who won't stay committed in the fall. Now, I can tell you confidently, I believe he's right, because Bud's not the first guy that I've heard to say that. He's the first person I've seen to really write about it. Coaches have been talking about this, and there's a difference in philosophy out there. You'll notice it right now if you look at the 24-7 sports team recruiting rankings in how to handle as Matthew McConaughey so aptly described it a couple of weeks ago when we interviewed him, these COVID-19 times, okay? Some of these coaches, especially the ones at the very top of the sport, some of them, I'm telling you Nick Saban at Alabama is one of them, he wants to get guys in camp. He wants to put his eyeballs on you. He wants to put you through reps, drills, et cetera, before he extends you a committable offer, what's called a committable offer in the recruiting world. Can't do it. Camps out the window, summer eval, spring eval period out the window. So you've had a, a difference in philosophy. You've had some programs, and I don't think it's that difficult to figure out who we're talking about here, who have decided, let's go, relatively speaking, sight unseen. Let's trust our tape. Let's trust our in-house evaluation as much as we've been able to see kids. Maybe it's sophomore and junior in-person evals, but let's offer kids and let's take them. Here's what happens. You have sort of a and we used the word tsunami already tonight, and I'm going to use it again before this topic is done, but you have sort of a ripple effect. Let's not use tsunami, a ripple effect. So I got Matt sitting over here off to my left. Uh, a lot of you remember the name Hazmat from our Columbus, Georgia days, which fully tips off where I'm at right now. But let's say Matt and I both want to go to Tennessee. Tennessee's been hot. And let's say Matt commits to Tennessee. And then let's say I look around and I see a dozen other guys on any given day because it's been happening in waves nationally. Let's say a dozen other guys commit. A couple of them go to TCU. One of them commits to Auburn. Georgia grabs one. I'm looking around and my original timetable was October or maybe even the early signing period day in mid-December. But then all of a sudden I look around and I've got coaches texting me saying we're filling up. And I'm looking around at these classes and they're filling up. Well, what in turn does that pressure me to do? Of course, it pressures me to make sure I lock down a spot too. That's what's happening. And that's what Bud's pointing out here. And that's what a lot of coaches are figuring out. A lot of kids are committing right now with a toe in the water instead of diving in the pool. And you look around and this is what's going to be important. There's a lot of recruiting momentum for a lot of programs that aren't used to being in the top 10. We have spoken on this show, on Lake Kick Live, you and I have talked about at varying degrees, Minnesota, we've talked about North Carolina killing it. I think North Carolina's got a lot more staying power than some of these others, because the guys they're landing are in-state kids. But we talked about Tennessee, I'm gonna talk about Tennessee later on this show. We've spoken about, oh, who else? There, there've been, if you look at the top 15 right now, there are a number, there are also a number of programs that are normally parked squarely inside the top five, top 10 that aren't there right now. So Bud continues here. Keep in mind that prospects are scrambling to secure spots in classes, even if they've never visited. That's the other point. There are a lot of kids right now who are committing or have committed to programs that they've never visited. So I gave you the 627 commitment number. What does this number mean? Because you need some context. Well, there's a graphic here that I think really hammers it home. Right now, committed prospects through yesterday. So today's the 7th. 
through yesterday, May 6th, the 2021 recruiting cycle, there were 627 kids committed. By comparison, in 2020 at this time, there were 302. In 2019, there were 243. Also, the graphic, as it uh, points out, tells you you can add up 2020 and 2019 combined. There weren't this many kids committed as there are right at this moment. So it's obvious what's coming. So here's the question. What does this have to do with the regular season? Let's say we get a regular season. Or let's say we get a regular season in the SEC. We get a partial season somewhere else. And then we don't get a season elsewhere, which is very much on the table right now. We had news come out of Oregon earlier today. I was back and forth with some of our Oregon guys on Twitter, very respectfully. But, you know, there was an announcement today by the governor, I believe, of Oregon that, hey, we're probably not going to be able to have large gatherings, at least through September. Meanwhile, you've got people uh, 3,500 miles away down south looking for every possible way to open a football season on time. So I'm not here to argue about that. I'm here to say the whole synchronicity thing, we're not going to have synchronicity in college football this fall. So let's say that someone starts cold and let's say someone else starts hot. Sometimes that affects your recruiting. Sometimes it doesn't. But when kids are already on tilt, when the seesaw is already very tediously sort of over the edge there, and it's going to take maybe a grain of sand instead of a rock or a boulder to tip someone's recruitment, everything's going to be magnified this season. And here's what else we don't know. What we don't know is, is the recruiting calendar going to be impacted? Bud talks about this, I believe, towards the end of this article. In fact, let me, let me, pull, let me pull that sentence up. Once coaches are allowed to get back on the road and eyeball prospects in person, schools will begin dropping some of the players that are recruited. This happens every cycle. You can certainly bet your bottom dollar. If coaches do it when they have you in camp and then find better options down the road, when they haven't got you in camp, their eyeballs are eventually going to tell them, oh boy, we took some kids we normally wouldn't take. So it's going to be a two-way street now. Some kids are going to be decommitting. Some kids are going to be, well, as far as you can tell, decommitting. But in reality, it's going to be because they don't have an option. This, and this is the final paragraph, this, of course, assumes that visits open up again in time for prospects to be able to take multiple visits and form relationships. If the time for available visits is short and National Signing Day remains the same, it's possible prospects just elect to stick with their commitment. So there is a lot of uncertainty. I know that's shocking given, again, these COVID-19 times. What's going to happen in the fall is you're going to have a lot more radical sort of, um, I don't know, it's just going to be, there's going to be a lot of churn in the national recruiting rankings, even more so than normal. But what happens is a lot of programs try and marry recruiting success with on-field success or vice versa. And what I'm telling you is I don't necessarily think for a number of reasons, I don't really have time to go down this road. Maybe I'll do it on the Late Kick Extra podcast this next week. Download that, by the way, if you haven't already, it came out yesterday. But I don't think that there's going to be the same necessary attachment between results on field and then results on the recruiting trail for the 2021 season or cycle. That could be wrong. I could be wrong about that. But there's a lot going on right there. And I'm just telling you, expect decommitments. Don't be shocked by them. Don't care which program you are. Even Clemson hasn't been immune. Corey Foreman, one of the top players in the country per 24-7 sports, decommitted recently. Now, that was before the tsunami. But the tsunami is coming. So be very careful. And also remember this. Be careful laughing at your in-state brother or your cousin. And I'm speaking figuratively, of course. I'm talking about your rivals. Be careful because while today it may be them, tomorrow it will be you. At some point, everyone's going to get hit by this. All right, let's move on.
um, I was recording the aforementioned Late Kick Extra podcast. And um, I keep on laying out the parameters of that because we have new viewers every show and we appreciate you being tuned in. I'm looking at a lot of you right now. What, what I do is I don't have time to answer all the questions on the show, but I like to answer as many questions as possible. So what I do is I aggregate as many of them as possible from the YouTube live chat, from the comment section afterwards, from email, Twitter, et cetera. And I answer as many of them on the Late Kick Extra podcast as possible. We record it Tuesday. It gets released Wednesday. So yesterday we released a new version of that. And someone on the last batch of questions asked a question about Gus Malzahn. And then Brandon asked kind of a derivative of that same question today. So I'm going to get it started with Brandon's question. He said, what's it ever going to take for Auburn to compete with Bama and Georgia and LSU? And I sat back and I thought, and I said, they already do. Don't beat them every year. Uh, There aren't many teams out there that are going to beat. There aren't many teams out there that get a chance to beat those teams. But even if they did get an opportunity every year or task, depending on your perspective, I don't think there are many teams out there this side of the NFL capable of pulling that off. But then it got me to thinking, you know, this reminds me when I used to be where I am tonight in Columbus and I used to be right in Auburn's backyard. There are a lot of lot of Auburn fans, a lot of Auburn grads, a lot of former Auburn players reside in Columbus. We'd be around him all the time. So it always struck me the longer Malzahn was at Auburn. In 2013, everyone loved him because he went national championship first year or to the national championship game. But since then, slowly but surely, people have found ways to sort of chip away at the veneer. Sometimes deserved, sometimes not, in my estimation. But what always struck me and continues to this day to strike me is it's a very unique situation because the Auburn situation is sort of the inverse of what is typical. You have more criticism of the head coach there, the closer you get to the program and you have more praise and admiration and respect for the coach, the further away you get from the program. If I were to walk in, you know, an airport in Omaha, Nebraska and say, Hey, uh, what you think about Gus Malzahn? If, if I'm talking to a college football fan, they'll say, man, I, you know, he's probably not one of the five best coaches in America, but I mean, he's pretty good. He's beaten Nick Saban a couple of times and Ooh, they got it rough down there. And probably what they'd do if they were familiar with the theory of relativism is they would say, but you know what? If Malzahn was the coach in the ACC or if he was at a G5 school and I wonder what his record would be. And so that's kind of the way I've always thought about Malzahn, not above reproach, not without blame, not without criticism. No one is, but I want you to think about some of this. I think, and I'm not going to do this segment tonight. I've done this several times, but I think Gus Malzahn has the hardest job, hardest college football job in America. Now, it is a lot easier to win at Auburn than it is uh, Moorhead State. And to be honest with you, I don't even know if they have a football program. Please understand what I'm saying. Relative to expectation level and difficulty of schedule every year, that is what makes Auburn football and Gus Malzahn, being the head coach at Auburn, the toughest job in America. Here's what I mean by that. Only recently did they change the structure of the scheduling. The SEC scheduling changes this year. But yet, it's still going to be hard for Auburn. Up until this point, think of what the task at hand is if you're the head coach at Auburn. They have sky-high expectation because they have sky-high investment level. They invest emotionally and financially to the same degrees as other programs around them. Talked about this a million times on this show, even back when we were independent. So because of that, they expect elite return on investment, which is fair. I don't have a problem with that. I want you to consider what task that has meant for Auburn. In a typical year, 
up until this season, and really it doesn't change because I think they have like A&M or Alabama, LSU, Bama back-to-back to end of the year. Maybe that's A&M. Auburn has two tough games to end the year this year too. But up until this point, if you're going to win a national championship at Auburn, in all likelihood, here's what you have to do up until this year. You will have had to beat Georgia. You will have, that's a top five caliber team. You will have had to have beaten Alabama. That's a top five caliber team. You probably have to face Georgia again in Atlanta, or if not Georgia, someone who is better than Georgia. That's another top five caliber team. You got to go to a semifinal game and you got to beat obviously a top four team. That's four. And then you got to win the national championship game against a top five caliber team. You're having to win five games in the final six games of your season because there's a cupcake normally between the Georgia and Alabama games. But five of your final six games in the period of time where you can't afford to slip up is against the top five caliber team. Who is that? And come out on the other end unscathed. That's what makes the Auburn. I didn't even mention LSU because they play them earlier in the year. I didn't mention A&M. Half the time they play a pretty darn good out-of-conference opponent. So I didn't even mention all that. Just think about the last five weeks. So... I want you to focus on the pivot job. So see, my, my argument has been and will continue to be Malzahn's pretty criminally underrated the closer you get to the Auburn football program. Think about adaptation. When Malzahn got to Auburn in 2013, a lot of people watched what he was doing, and it, it was like it, I always equate it to just walking up behind someone and slapping them in the back of the head. It's kind of what his offense did down here. Even the coaches who knew what he was doing, they couldn't really do anything to stop it because they didn't have the athletes to do it. A lot of people had recruited to stop a power run game forever. And so you had a bunch of 6'3", 255-pound linebackers trying to run 53 and a third yard sideline to sideline, and it was ugly. It was really ugly. And he goes to the SEC championship, they win it. He goes to the national championship game, come that close against Jimbo Fisher and Jameis Winston. But it was a great year one year removed from that program going four and eight. So everyone's excited. And they put up some good offensive numbers, but then slowly conference starts to recruit to catch up with not just Auburn, but overall stylistically the way things were changing. Auburn was just part of that. And so you fast forward four years and Alabama and Georgia and LSU, well, now their linebackers are 6'2", 225, 230 in the inside spots. And they've got terrors off the edge at outside linebacker and those hybrid spots and defensive end, even the defensive tackles can get after the passer. And so all of a sudden now speed is not necessarily the advantage for you that it used to be. So whether it was by accident, dumb luck, or by design, Malzahn goes and hires a defensive coordinator. He's still there. His name's Kevin Steele. Uh, Guys, I know today Kevin Steele, I think right now, as of this moment, he may be the highest paid defensive coordinator in America. If not, he's right there because they just gave him an extension. At the time Gus Malzahn brought him in, it really didn't raise many eyebrows. Steele had been around. He had been, he had been at Alabama. He had been at several places, okay? So it wasn't like this hotshot new defensive coordinator. Hey, did you hear about this guy Malzahn's taking a chance on? Kevin Steele had been around the block. No one was scared of Kevin Steele. They respected him, but he was not feared by any sense or any stretch of the imagination. And then... All of a sudden, the identity of Auburn football changed because what happened is we started seeing inconsistency offensively. You bring Chip Lindsey in and uh, it's ugly at times. And Malzahn, is it his offense? Is it someone else's offense? But all the while, Auburn remains competitive and Auburn remains a contender, not winning SEC championships every year, but being a contender. And the reason they did it is because Kevin Steele just kind of quietly sits over there with his knee propped up, whistling, you know, sort of 
sort of bouncing a pogo ball back and forth, and his defense is top 15, then top 10, then top 5, and Auburn looks like they did in the early 2000s, playing a brand of football you didn't think that teams could play if they had that kind of offense. And so there was a nice little pivot done once the league started to adjust to Malzahn, and there was a pivot done by that Auburn coaching staff that kept them as a contender. But you really don't need to look any further than the Nick Saban factor. To talk about how I think underrated Gus Malzahn is, Malzahn's beaten Saban three times. He's been there since 2013. He beat him in 2013. He beat him in 2017. He beat him just this past year in 2019. Odd number years are Auburn's friend against University of Alabama. Combined, sorry, I just uh, bumped the mic there. Combined, the rest of the SEC. Take away Alabama. They can't beat themselves. Take away Auburn. Take them out of the equation. There are 12 other programs in the SEC. Combine all the head coaches down here. Do you know how many other head coaches right now that are active in the SEC have a win over Nick Saban? One. I'm holding up the one finger for those of you listening. And that would be Edward Orgeron. And he just did it this past year. That leaves, by my estimation, 11 other programs out there with head coaches who have never beaten him. One of them that just did it like five minutes ago. And then Gus Malzahn, who's done it three times. He also has to live in the same state as Nick Saban, therefore recruit in the same state as Nick Saban. And Auburn's done pretty good in state. They haven't beaten Alabama head-to-head for many kids in state. They have done it a time or two. They haven't done it consistently. They got to go into Georgia and recruit. Guess who's over there? Kirby Smart. You try to go into East Texas and recruit, and Texas A&M doing a pretty darn good job out there, and so is Texas, even if they haven't necessarily won with them. LSU. You used to have a lot of success down in Louisiana. LSU's down there right now. What in the world did they just do? They just won a national championship. So think about what it takes to win in this sport. They must have immaculate facilities, right? Nice facilities. They're not running circles around anyone in the SEC. Very rarely when you ask someone, hey, best facilities in the SEC, go. Very rarely is Auburn going to crack anyone's top four, top five. What is it that stands out? I mean, there's got to be like when you coach at Oregon and you win there, people always say, yeah, but they got the Nike factor. What does Auburn have? What advantage behind the scenes that we don't know about does Gus Malzahn have? So there are a lot of things working against him there is all I'm saying. And I think with all that considered, I think he's done a pretty good job. Now, as soon as I suggest that, I'll look in the comments, mark my words, and people are going to point out all kinds of negatives that are just fact. And not understand that, okay, that's your con list. You forgot the pros list over here. Because there are quite a few pros, too. And I just, anytime someone criticizes their coach, I don't have a problem with it. Especially when you do what you're asked. Auburn fans do what they're asked. They, They show up, and they support, and they give. So anytime you do that, I've said it about Georgia a million times. I don't have a problem with your sky high expectations. Whether they're realistic or not, that's another conversation. I don't have a problem with them. But here's what I do ask, kindly respectfully, who are you going to get to do it better? Because it's easy for part A of that conversation, the let's get rid of this guy, let's run him out of town on a rail. The part B, well, now we got a vacancy. Who's going to fill it? That's tough. And not just who's going to fill it, you could find a warm body to fill it. To justify getting rid of a head coach in any situation that doesn't involve scandal, you've got to have someone who can't just come in and do an equal job. they got to come in and do a better job. So who's going to do it better than Gus Malzahn? I haven't found anyone. I haven't found any realistic candidates. I mean, I know this last year, I had folks try to preach to me that Urban Meyer was on the table. No, he wasn't. No, he wouldn't be. I don't think I really 
I don't, I don't think I need to detail why he wouldn't be. So there's a, there's a better situation at Auburn right now than I think a lot of people realize. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now, I think a lot of people do realize how good Tennessee's got it at the moment. However, if you don't pay attention to recruiting, you must be pretty darn confused right now about the hype around Tennessee because that is what the hype is coming from. The hype is coming from recruiting. Does recruiting matter to you? It should, but maybe it doesn't. I, judging by the comment section, have been informed that a lot of people really don't care about recruiting all that much. So I'm scrolling the other day. As I told you, I read every one of these comments. How should I frame this? I know how I want to frame it. So the other day, we've talked about Tennessee like the last four shows. I can't help it, guys. They keep landing recruits. They keep landing verbal commitments from recruits. Okay, let me preface. Point one, because a lot of people hear what I don't say strangely enough. So I got to make sure I point out what I am and what I am not saying. About to have to do that again. So Tennessee, they're landing a bunch of kids. And I'm not just talking about project three-star with future three-year-down-the-road potential. I'm talking about big-time five-star talent out of Alabama, five-star talent out of South Florida. They've gotten kids out of Georgia, a Juco kid, top running back in the country from South Carolina in Juco right now in Kansas. So, and it keeps going. They probably landed a couple of kids since we've been on air. So, as we led the show talking about, they could stick, maybe they don't. I, I like where Tennessee is right now in recruiting. That's all I'm saying. Here's what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is, well, you can go and pencil them into Atlanta within the next couple of years. I don't know that. You don't listen. I don't know that about a loaded team. I can't say that about Florida and Florida's roster's better than Florida right now. You know who you have to go through in the East, that name that shan't be mentioned, Georgia. So I'm looking at the comment sections and the comment section the Tennessee fans are jacked, as you should be. And then I got some folks. This is how you know you still got some work to do. I mean, I kid you not. I read one comment that said, I'm a Bama fan. But, you know, I, I do want to, I, I want to see Tennessee back. It's just boring to beat up on them like we've been doing. Well, that's when you know you're not back yet. That's when you know you still got hay to put in the barn. You want them to despise you. You remember, you remember, it's been about a decade since that rivalry's been relevant, but you know, you remember what it was like in Tuscaloosa and surrounding areas when Bill Fulmer tried to decapitate your program. You remember that. A lot of you haven't forgotten. Apparently in the comment section, some of you have. So I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking the other night when I was on the air, which led me to say on the air, Tennessee, a lot of people are shocked by the commitments. A lot of people making accusations about all these commitments. And I'm like, Tennessee has never lacked the ability 
to build an elite roster. They've never lacked the ability to have a roster every bit as skilled and talented, important to have both of them, skilled and talented, as anyone else in America. I got a lot of a surprising amount of pushback, to be honest with you. I got a lot of surprising amount of pushback on that. And so that leads me to ask, what is it you think they don't have? If you're in that camp that believes Tennessee's ceiling is below the elite level, in other words, they can press all the right buttons and there are just unforeseen factors, very present, but unforeseen or unseen in the world of college football that limits their ceiling. What is that? You know, a, a, a you know, crop duster can't fly as high as a commercial jet can. There is an artificial ceiling built in on that crop duster. So Tennessee, like what's the ceiling here? And if it's lower than elite status, what is it that's keeping them there? Because here's what I think to steal another transportation analogy. My first vehicle was a 94 GMC Sierra. And I drove it um, a long, long time. Loved it. Had no problem with it. Was very thankful for it. But it wasn't a Lamborghini. And so we didn't have a lot of those at Harris County High School, to be honest with you. Had a couple. Um, You know what kind of kids those turned out to be. But the 94 GMC, at its peak efficiency, if I pulled up next to a Lamborghini and the thing was sitting on blocks because the, the tires were flat, how stupid would it be for me to laugh at the capability of that vehicle? I didn't say there was smoke coming from under the hood. I didn't say that the entire axle was bent and it was irreparable. I just said the tires are flat. As soon as someone comes and fixes the tires on this Lamborghini, it can embarrass me. It can donut me. It can be like Tokyo Drift, and it can just make me look foolish in that truck, no matter how well I have that truck running. Because the Lamborghini's ceiling is a lot higher, with all due respect to me and other former 94 GMC Sierra owners, than the aforementioned 94 GMC Sierra. My point is, Tennessee's capability level is that of a Lamborghini. This is not Miami of Ohio. And this is not even Missouri, and I don't mean that disrespectfully to Missouri, but I intentionally say Missouri because I'm about to bring up a point in a second. But I want you to ask yourself if you believe there is a built-in ceiling for Tennessee below elite status. Let's dive into it a little bit. Alabama, Georgia, uh, Oklahoma, LSU, pick the elite teams in college football, Ohio State. What keeps Tennessee from being that? I'm not asking you what has kept them from being that. That's the easy answer. That's the obvious answer. What would keep them, if all the right buttons were pressed, from being that? It's not a guessing game. Here's why I mentioned Missouri. Missouri, even if they started rolling, which they did under Gary Pinkle a time or two, there was a fair amount of questioning done about that program in regard to how good could they really get? Like, uh, man, they played in the SEC championship game, I think a couple times, didn't they? And You know, if you're in the SEC championship conversation, you're in the national championship conversation, but people were fairly asking, man, Missouri is in, well, Columbia, Missouri. There's no real pipeline of talent there, the likes of which you get in Gainesville, Florida, or Athens, Georgia, Austin, Texas, et cetera. How long can this last? What is the ceiling on that program? That was fair. And the ceiling for Missouri football, sustained ceiling, is below elite status. At Tennessee, it's not like that. Here's how I know. They've done it already, and they've been a national contender in different eras with different coaches. If you want to go mid-late 80s uh, into the 1990 time frame, Johnny Majors did it there. If you want to go late 90s, Philip Fulmer won a national championship there, won back-to-back SEC championships, 97, 98, I believe. Don't quote me on that, but won a national championship. That's only a little over 20 years ago. Some of you aren't 20 years old, but yet 
In college football, relativity, 20 years is not all that long a time. But even if it is, if you're telling me they're not capable of it now, that must mean something's changed in the sport. As far as I can tell, Knoxville's in the same place. As far as I can tell, they still care a great deal about football there. So if you're telling me they're not capable anymore of something that they have achieved already, I've seen it, I can go back and watch the old VHS replays, something must have changed. So what is it? Because to me, it's not a guessing game of what they're capable of if they've already proven it. What does it take? What are the requirements? This is something you'll hear us talk about from time to time on this show. You got to have a really big support base. That's, that's just a fan base that's rabid, that cares. They have to be fully bought in. There's a reason they got to be big in number and they got to be fully bought in because you got to have money and you get it in the TV deals as a result of being in a conference like the SEC and the revenue sharing program there. But you need projects and you need checks written and you need to hire the best coaching staff that money can buy and the optimum word there is money. And you got to have a big fan base fully bought in because they need to write those checks. Tennessee has all this. This is not something they lack. Trust me, they have it. You have to have facilities, which obviously is required to build. Tennessee's got great facilities. And if they're lacking today, they possess the war chest to catch up tomorrow. So that's nothing that they're lacking in. And this is the one that a lot of people go to, I think. You got to have access to red hot recruiting beds. If you're not parked there geographically, you got to have ties to get there. Here's where I think people are wrong, just to be honest with you. If you don't think Tennessee can recruit at the same level Georgia can with the right staff in place, I'm not using the past couple of weeks as anecdotal evidence. Let's pretend the last three weeks have not even happened. Let's pretend Tennessee's ranked 21st in recruiting. We're talking about what they're capable of, not what they're doing at this very moment that could evaporate tomorrow. Tennessee's in Knoxville. I've always been a big believer if you get the right staff in there and you expand that radius out six hours and look at all of the territory that is in that six-hour circle around Knoxville, Tennessee, and you think about getting Atlanta there and virtually all of the Carolinas and getting up into parts of Virginia, close to the Tidewater, you recruit Ohio in the most fertile beds, at least. You've got the state of Tennessee. You got North Alabama. You got parts of uh, Mississippi, I want to say. I don't have a map written in front of me. But take that and now combine it with having guys on your staff that have, whether you be T. Martin, connections out west, whether you be Jeremy Pruitt, connections all over the south, but especially in Alabama, that just paid dividends with Dylan Brooks out of Roanoke, Alabama, people. There is no Tennessee to Roanoke, Alabama pipeline. There just isn't. Never has been, never will be. And South Florida as well. When you look at the staff they have and you look at some emerging stars they have, that's the right combination. That's the kind of coaching staff that you have to have. But I just mentioned a whole bunch of prerequisites that it takes to be elite. That's what I think it takes to be elite. Those are the boxes you have to check. Maybe I left something out that you know about, or maybe you don't think one of these matters. I'd love to hear it. Because Tennessee, as far as, I can, as far as I can tell, they're capable of checking all these boxes. Now, here's what I didn't say. This is the part where we have to give the great big asterisk next to the segment, and we have to give one final caveat. What I didn't say is this last couple of weeks proves anything in terms of what results will be. We also don't know if Jeremy Pruitt is going to end up being the right head coach. Now, if you're asking me what I think, absolutely. And I'd bet money on him. I think he is. And I think their staff is. And I think that they possess, as I said, the war chest to keep those guys in-house. I think the balance is right up there. So, so they got a lot of ingredients in the kitchen. What's the meal going to look like? That's the big question that I can't wait to see answered every bit as much as you can't wait. But here's what I do know. What I do know is 
I've watched that team. Now, these are my eyeballs talking. I'm not a former coach. I'm not going to bring out a grease board and insult your intelligence or mine, making you think I am qualified to break this game down at that kind of level. But these eyeballs saw Tennessee play Alabama pretty tough last year, had no chance of beating them because of the talent gulf. These eyeballs have seen Jeremy Pruitt push Georgia. Don't really have much of a chance of beating them yet because of the talent gulf. That's unless Georgia goes like, you know, minus four turnovers like they did against South Carolina. If you have the coaching staff in place, if you have the football minds in place, and then you toss a whole bunch more talent in there, that talent gets turned into skill because they know how to turn it into skill. And they get put in the right place and they get trained the right way. And then all of a sudden, you got a different caliber athlete with which to harness your hopes and dreams to, then things get really fun. So I think that's coming. I don't think that's an if. I think that's a whim. I think a lot of you who disagree, we just differ in terms of what we think Tennessee's capable of. That's really, I think, the crux of that entire debate, if you want to call it that. I'm happy to have it. I have been wrong a time or two. I just really feel pretty confident about this one. Some questions here. Uh, Chase was on YouTube, and this was, this was the other day, and I didn't get to it, and I felt bad because I also left it on the cutting room floor for the YouTube Extra podcast. So, Chase, here we go. Which Pac-12 team is closest to closing the gap with the best teams in the SEC and the Big Ten? And I'm going to add Clemson in there, too. And I'm, I'm going to add Oklahoma in there. Chase, it's, um, to me, it's a multi-part question, even though you didn't put multiple parts in this question, because I want you to think about this. The short answer is Mario Cristobal in Oregon. Let me get that out of the way. Here's the bigger question. The bigger question is, if, let's say Mario Cristobal, for example, builds Oregon to the caliber that it takes to annually contend with the best teams in America, how long is he at Oregon? When you start to talk about the gap between the Pac-12 and, for example, the SEC, because that's where I think Cristobal would end up heading, if you talk about that gap and what a middle-of-the-road or upper-tier SEC program can do in all sorts of different arenas versus what the Pac-12 is doing to you in terms of limitation. This has nothing to do with Oregon. This is a Pac-12 problem. You guys out there on the West Coast know exactly what I'm talking about. Half the time you can't find your own games. I certainly can't find them down in Georgia or Tennessee. You got to ask, do the best coaches in America, this is a hard pill to swallow if the answer is no, but it's a pill that we at least have to put on the table. Do the best coaches in America, either present day or as they become known as the best head coaches in America, still view the Pac-12 as the equal? It's a power five, but do they view it as an equal to these other major conferences? Because if you succeed, the offers are going to come. Because there's an annual turnover rate of like a 25% in the major conferences when it comes to jobs opening up. Just historically, that's kind of the 15, 25%, somewhere like that. Jobs are going to open up. At major programs, jobs are going to open up. Where are they going to look? They're going to look to a guy like Mario Cristobal. What kind of competition can you put in front of him in terms of an offer to keep him from taking that bait? Because there's a lot of reasons to move on, no matter how much you love Oregon, no matter how much you love Southern Cal, no matter how much you love programs that a generation ago, even 10 years ago, this wasn't a conversation as much nearly as it is now. Because now it's not a program problem more than it is a conference problem. That's why I'm not, I, this is not meant to be disrespectful to Oregon at all. I'm pulling for you guys. But at the same time, I think it's an honest question that's not very much fault of your own. Uh, Dawson, through the email inbox, what's the best city for hosting a national title game? I don't know what everyone else's criteria here is, 
but I love New Orleans. I had been there for a playoff game, which was the Alabama Clemson semifinal a couple of years ago. And then we were back there to cover the national championship game this past January. And uh, man, there's just nothing New Orleans does wrong. I've never been a fan outside of Pasadena, where it never rains. I've never been a fan of holding meaningful college football games, postseason games, in places where weather can be a factor. Now, oh boy, this is where I have big disagreement with some of my buddies, especially from Big Ten country, who argue the elements are part of football. There's no one who enjoys watching weather impact a football game more than me. I Because I'm a weather nerd. Always have been. I've loved weather longer than I've loved football. So it is like crack on a television screen for me to watch like that... Um, who was it a few? It was like Notre Dame and NC State played in just a downpour. I was at that Bama-Georgia game in 2015 when there was a tropical system coming through. Got like two inches of rain during that game. I love that stuff in the regular season. But when the games mean the most, man, I don't like factors like uh, the elements and weather to be in play. So I automatically cross off places like Tampa because it's an outdoor stadium. Could have a rain shower come through. I was at uh, the Clemson, who was a Clemson-Bama game in Santa Clara. Got lucky with weather, but the weather leading up, the days prior, miserable. And Northern California is not Southern California, folks. And their national championship game never had any business being in the San Francisco 49ers stadium. That's when the wrong folks are making decisions for college football. When you got a college football national championship game happening in Levi Stadium. Nice stadium. It's just not where a college football national championship game should be. So, Dawson, my answer is New Orleans I, I loved the way that they treated us in Glendale. Uh, that's, that's Phoenix, basically, Arizona. Uh, the Rose Bowl is awesome, too. Miami does a good job. None of these places, they do a bad job. They don't get the game. These are veterans. I mean, they do this stuff all the time. My personal favorite has been New Orleans. Caleb Williams, question mark. That was Jeffrey's question. Jeffrey and YouTube. Caleb Williams, question mark. Caleb Williams is a stud, dual threat quarterback out of the Washington, D.C. area. And I do a hit with Steve Wilfong every Monday, Tuesday. It's called the Wilfong Recruiting Whip Around. There is so much information in this thing. It's free, guys. You don't have to pay for it. I don't know how long it's going to stay free. To be quite honest with you, I don't think it's the best business decision we've ever made because of how much information is in that video. Get it while you can, is my advice. We record it and release it every Tuesday or Wednesday. This, last, this week, we released it Tuesday. I cannot tell you how plugged in Steve Wolfong is. I had to, no, I'm not going to burn that for him. Suffice to say, there are a lot of commitments happening right now. Mother's Day, this coming Sunday, is a big commitment day. Wolfong, we're having to stop recording. We're doing it via Zoom. So you got me and him split screen on a computer, not much unlike I'm looking at right now. And this guy has to stop recording twice to take calls from the actual kids and one Power 5 head coach at one point. Just flat out telling them what's going to happen. You always wonder, does that happen? Absolutely it happens. Plugged in, to say the least, is Steve Wolfong. So I mentioned that because Caleb Williams, the big talk has been, is it Oklahoma? Is it LSU? Well, then Garrett Nussmeyer commits to LSU. So... You know, you're, you're just seeing the blocks move around in your head and you're thinking, okay, Nussmeyer goes to LSU. Well, I guess that means that they're out of it for Caleb Williams. I don't know that that's the case. Now, before Nussmeyer committed to LSU, I would have called Oklahoma the front runner for Caleb Williams. So obviously, I still believe, and my information is basically coming from Wilfong. So Steve Wilfong, as of this week, still believed Oklahoma was the front runner. So my answer, uh, Jeffrey, is Oklahoma. 
being the front runner there. However, it's interesting the pitch that LSU makes here. The pitch is they want to take two bona fide stud quarterbacks. And with the way that the quarterback position is working in college football right now, I don't want to ever hear anyone again say, why would we take a, we already have a quarterback. We already have a couple quarterbacks. Year over year, the more good quarterbacks you have, the less chance you have of them still being on your roster the following year. We'll treat it like any other position. That's how coaches look at it nowadays. Just stack them. If you don't have, you don't have room over here, just start a new pile over here. Stack as many quarterbacks as you can. That's what I said about JT Daniels, who has, to this point, still not transferred from USC. But some of the Tennessee folks, when I suggested maybe Knoxville, said, well, we already got Harrison Bailey. Yeah, and what? Well, we got Jared Garantano here. Got Brian Maurer. Um, and prayers for him, by the way, with the news that came out, uh, shared by him recently. But talking strictly football, it's like, well, we already got a few quarterbacks here. Okay. Well, how many do you put on the field at a time? Put one on the field at a time. The other ones who are already there know that. So, you know, odds are no one's keeping three quarterbacks on a roster for any extended period of time anymore anyway, Tennessee or otherwise. But regardless, if there's one out there you think is better than the ones you currently have, or if you got one out there who's comparable and they want to come in and compete, what kind of fool would ever turn that down? Probably a head coach who's not going to have a job very much longer. So I don't think Jeremy Pruitt would be that way, and I don't have any inside information on that. Hadn't heard anything from JT Daniels in a while. But just, just as a general rule of thumb, on this show, we believe in getting as many great quarterbacks on your roster as possible, then letting competition settle that. So all I'm saying all that for is to say, don't just assume because Garrett Nussmeyer, Nussmeyer rather goes to LSU that they're just out of the sweepstakes for any other elite quarterback. They're certainly not going to stop recruiting them. I can tell you that. Really appreciate you joining us tonight. Uh, do me a favor. If you are watching on the YouTube channel, subscribe and click the bell for notifications. And also, whether you listen to the podcast or not, the podcast wizards always tell me, Tani and Connor always tell me, hey, just tell the guys. It's a loyal audience. And I, I know that. I've known that longer than anyone. So I just humbly ask you, go find the Late Kick podcast wherever you download podcasts. I think there's a link in the show description right below the video right now you're watching. If you're watching on YouTube, just click that five star and give us a quick written review because it helps. Boy, it helps. It's actually, that's almost as good as money. We'll still take money if you want to send it to us. But if you don't want to send money, that's the next best thing. And it's just a, it's a really close second. So uh, I plan on being back in Nashville Sunday night. So I'll be back in studio Sunday night. Until then, for uh, Hazmat making an appearance over here tonight, for Colin back at home base in Nashville, for Aaron, who will be cutting up this video, well, parts of this video, along with Colin tomorrow, for Colin, uh, for, man, Tani, for uh, everybody else that works on this in some degree. We appreciate you watching. Have a great night. We'll see you back here same time Sunday.